Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our new website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello Trojan fans and welcome to episode number 198 of the Peristyle Podcast. We've got a great show for you this week on the podcast. We're going to talk a little BCS. We've got some Heisman Trophy talk coming up uh, later on today. We'll find out who the top Heisman finalists are. If Matt Barkley will be among them. We're going to talk to the Heisman pundit, Chris Houston, from New York City actually. Uh, talking to him about what he thinks about the Heisman Trophy this year. I'll reveal what I voted. I'm an official Heisman voter this year, so you can hear what, who I voted for. And we have uh, Dan Weber in the first segment. We're going to a lot of USC questions to get to finishing off the season, so we're going to talk to him. And then same thing like we did the last couple of weeks, we will do a Trojan Blast recruiting podcast tomorrow on Tuesday. So we'll have Gerard Martinez talking about that. Harvey Hyde this week is on secret assignment, but we do have a lot of questions to get to, and Dan Weber is going to do a great job of getting to all those for you. If you have any questions or comments for us, We'd love to hear from you. Podcast at uscfootball.com is our email address, or you can give us a call, 206-888-6755 is the number. And wanted to thank Dan Weber again for coming on and uh, batting leadoff for us. What's up, Dan? How you doing? Oh, uh, doing good. Doing good. Looking forward to uh, to going first here. Yeah, for, so for sure. We do have a lot of questions, but um, just before we get into all that, we were talking before the show about the uh, BCS. We did have some people writing in about, don't you have to win your conference to represent the, you know, the BCS, the national championship game. And there's been some misconceptions out there, but I think we both agree. It's not the uh, greatest bowl lineup going on. No, it's really not. I mean, uh, we were thinking it, and I don't know that it's just, uh, you know, West coast, uh, you know, bias or whatever, but uh, uh, right now, I mean, the only, two games I'm interested in. You know, I think the Rose Bowl is a good game. I think Wisconsin's always a good Big Ten team to come out here. They've got, you know, interesting quarterback, uh, uh, Monty Baldwin, the running back. Uh, They've got great fans. uh, And, and, you know, maybe Oregon will be uh, ready to, uh, you know, step up and follow the – I think the last time they won a big game was 1917 uh, in the Rose Bowl. So, uh, they're about due, so uh, it might be interesting to see that game. I think that'll, that'll be one I'll be watching. And I'd I, I like to see if Stanford, you know, gets healthy enough and, uh, and there's Stanford and um, Oklahoma State in the Fiesta Bowl. I, I was impressed with Oklahoma State. I know Oklahoma obviously didn't want to play anymore and just wanted to go home. But um, uh, I thought Oklahoma State actually played themselves into the – into the championship game, and uh, you know, I think it's an unbelievable embarrassment for BCS that they went with the uh, rematch of uh, Alabama LSU, uh, and uh, you know, it's the it's the dream that the SEC had ever since they set up the BCS, and then they figured out how to game it, but nobody, I don't think, ever thought that they would double game it and and get two teams that couldn't score a touchdown against one another because their offenses are so bad uh, and they have no quarterbacks. And then they talk about, I mean, they're geniuses. I mean, they have a league with no quarterbacks and they tell everybody 
how great their defense is. Well, maybe. I don't know. I saw uh, West Virginia throw the ball for about 500 yards against uh, LSU, and we saw, uh, uh, you know, uh, four turnover Oregon in their opener still scored 27 points against this LSU defense. It's just the greatest thing. And if you look at Alabama, you have no idea how good they are because they haven't played anybody. Who knows? I mean, you know, their their one road victory is, you know, over Penn State by a couple of touchdowns. And, uh, you know, Penn State's not any good. And, uh, you know, they all say, well, Arkansas, look at Arkansas. Yeah, look at Arkansas. I mean, it, it's just, you know, they just uh, they pulled the wool over everybody's eyes. I think I think you know uh, LSU's got some really good athletes, but could they, you know, could they play the pass? Uh, it surely looked like the Georgia kids were getting open uh, time and time and time again. Young kids at Georgia who weren't very talented and couldn't catch the ball, but they sure got open. They just didn't catch it. Uh, if LSU, as great as they are defensively, has been playing USC uh, Saturday, I'm thinking the halftime score would have been about 28 to nothing. <laughs> I, mean, it, and it, I mean, this is a team that had no first downs in the first half. Uh, and, you know, they get a you know, punt return and a touchdown for, you know, a kid that doesn't cross the goal line with the ball and gets two amazingly uh, right in the middle of the field blocks in the back on the return uh, uh, in order to get, you know, Tyler Matthews is really good. There's no question about it. Uh, and he may be, uh, have inserted himself into the five-man Heisman field. I don't know if you can do it that late on the, on the last weekend, but uh, the unfortunate part there is if he does, and a couple of Heisman, uh, you know, predictor, predictors that I saw, you know, the last two uh, overnight, he would be uh, maybe knocking uh, Matt Barkley out of the, the five-man field. So we'll see. But right now the SEC's got it going their way. Hopefully the rest of the country says, gee, man, who needs this? I mean, if I'm the Pac-12 and the Big Ten, I say, do we really need to be part of this? Why don't we just go back to the old bowl system? You know, we'll play in the Rose Bowl, and we'll send guys around to other other bowls. But who needs to be part of a supporting cast? of a system that's basically been set up by the SEC to take care of the SEC. Uh, I, I really would seriously, you know, think about uh, with another, I guess, another year, I guess they'll decide this coming year where the BCS goes. Uh, and I think 2014 maybe is the first year that, that they go the other way. Uh, they go with a new, uh, new postseason setup. But if I'm the Big, big Ten and the, and the Pac-12, I might think, you know what, who needs to be part of that? And, and let it be what it is, you know, a, a system that's been rigged for the SEC. Uh, all right, Dan. Well, let's uh, let's get to some of these questions. Um, I agree with you on your BCS takes. We'll probably got a lot of time to talk about that during the offseason, too, mm. leading up to the bowl season. But let's see. Steve had a question. He had a different take on the UCLA game, the 50 to nothing score. He felt that Kiffin went for records. And he didn't think it was sportsmanlike, and it was unbefitting of a coach of a top-caliber team. Don't get me wrong. I love the 50 to nothing shutout, but that was a 10-year-old part of me that enjoys a lopsided victory over an arch-rival. What goes around comes around, and I'm afraid this will come back to bite us. What do you think about how Kiffin handled that, that game? I don't know if you can uh, you know, 
approach those in terms of I'm afraid you know it's going to come back to bite us. I just, I just don't think that's how you you play a game. Uh, I also kind of agree with uh, the way Pete always looked at it, uh, Pete Carroll, that if you aren't trying hard and if you aren't doing what you do well, you really are demeaning your opponent. You're really uh, you know taking uh, uh, you know you're you're taking pity on them. And I think there's nothing worse than that. Uh, you know, I thought, uh, and uh, you know, for people who, uh, you know, weren't crazy about Rick Nehaus, so I thought he handled it really well. I thought he understood, uh, uh, you know, that that, you know, that you are saying uh, good things about your rival if you play hard. Uh, I, I'm glad that Lane explained why they threw the ball to Robbie Boyer. Uh, I think USC didn't want to. Uh, I mean, purposely had made the decision if they could get away with it, they weren't going to, you know, choose between uh, 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 Cody Kessler and uh, Max Wittick, and so they weren't going to use either one's red shirt if they got lucky, and they didn't have to. Uh, and then with Jesse Scroggins got healthy, I think they kind of also decided let's leave those three for the spring competition if that's you know if they are to be the successor. Uh, you know, depending on whether Matt comes back or not. So, and the game plan obviously was the way uh, UCLA was playing defense. They were going to throw the ball, and they just decided, you know, we're going to just play as long as we're, you know, we're out there. We're going to keep playing, and that's how you do in a, in a rivalry. And uh, I think I, I wouldn't, I would not agree with that. I thought uh, uh, UCLA, uh, I thought handled it well. I thought they came off of it well. I thought they used it uh, to their benefit in the Oregon game. I thought they came out, you know, and, uh, you know, I think that game wasn't terribly fair that Oregon had to be in that game, and it was hard for them to, to maybe be at their best. But, uh, but I thought UCLA, you know, came off of it well, acquitted themselves well in the championship game where, you know, they really shouldn't have been there and knew it. And, uh and that was good for UCLA. I'm glad they, you know, they took advantage of it. But no, I, I don't have that down, you know, that that negative look about uh, what UCLA or what USC did in in the in the. And let's face it, it's the last game. I mean, this was USC's bowl game. They aren't gonna, they weren't gonna get to play in the conference championship game, which again, unbelievably unfair that the NCAA did not rescind. Uh, USC's bowl ban in the second year, after especially after they knew what Paul D was involved in before the appeal was uh, was uh, decided, and it's unbelievably, I think, short-sighted on the part of uh, of uh, the Pac-12 not to have maybe changed, you know, changed their rule. They could have, if they wanted to, and they could have said, uh, whoever wins the South is going to play in our first ever championship game, but they didn't. You know, Larry Scott didn't show the leadership and probably was afraid uh, the other 11 would say, no, 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 we, we like it, you know, with USC down uh, and not in that game. Well, you got what you wanted then, uh, <laughs> a really bad game. Right. So, uh, so USC basically knows this is all we've got. So for them to start taking a knee and all of that, I thought that would have, that I would have not, I thought that would have been a bad, bad form. I think they needed to play all the way through, and uh, and I'm glad they did. Okay. Uh, well, we got some more BCS, USC kind of questions before we get into some other team stuff. We'll talk Mac Barkley, of, of course, but um, I guess real quick on this one, Lamar says on the media bias, 
What if USC joined the SEC? It would help recruiting, make the NCAA consider a plus one, get more support, and give USC a better chance to keep compete for the championship each year. What do you think about that? Boy, that's interesting. Um, my guess would be, uh, yeah, I mean, the SEC would look at them differently. Uh, you'd see some flip flopping big time if uh, you know if. Uh, if USC wanted to do that, uh, that'd be inter- that's an interesting thought. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, then I think legitimately the SEC could say, you know, okay, whoever wins the SEC automatically wins it. Uh, that'd be interesting. Uh, the plus one model, I think, uh, and I, you know what the SEC is thinking, I think, there is that they're going to be two of the four teams and they'll still have a chance to get there. Uh, I almost had the sense this year that those people aren't dumb people. They're they're running the SEC, and they know their football. And I swear, they know they're not sure what will happen in a championship game. Uh, A team that can really throw the ball like Oklahoma State, as bad as their defense is. the SEC people, I, don't, I think, don't know what would happen if they had to play somebody who can really throw the ball. I mean, I think we've seen over the years what happens when a Big Ten team, even a good Big Ten team, comes to the Rose Bowl, and they haven't seen anybody that can really throw the football. It's really almost impossible to get ready in a month for something you haven't seen all year, and that's why USC's had you know, kind of an advantage, or the West Coast teams have had an advantage in the Rose Bowl, and I think that might be the same thing. And I think one of the reasons that the SEC so wanted this matchup is they didn't want one of those two teams to have to play in Oklahoma State who just throws the ball all around the field, and they don't know how they do. Uh, so, um, you know, this is a good way to uh, to avoid that and not have to have that, you know, uh, sense of, uh-oh, you know, we haven't played anybody can throw it. Now we're going to play one. What What's going to happen, um, you know, we built this whole, you know, season around how great our defenses are, but what if we can't play somebody that throws the ball? So uh, I think the SECs, they're willing to take the criticism this year for the, you know, kind of bad offensive teams in the matchup uh, just based on uh, we'll, uh, we won't have to face somebody who can really throw the ball. But, yeah, I, I think that's – I'd be very interested if USC, you know, said uh, maybe we'd like to play in a – uh, you know, in the SEC. Uh, I, I would like to see USC keep – I know they've signed the rights over for 12 years, but I still think they should keep exploring their options and making it clear that they're going to explore their options uh, because they need to have, you know, some sense of uh, – I mean, I don't get any sense that there's any gratitude from these teams who are going to get $20 million a year that they never would have gotten, you know, from TV revenue, basically generated by USC. I mean, I would guess of the $3, million, $3 billion contract, easily, you know, one and a half to $2 billion of that is generated by the presence of USC <laughs> in this league. And the fact that they're all going to be able to go out and hire new coaches and what have you, through nothing they've done. I mean, nothing. I mean, you know, Washington State's an absolute embarrassment as far as a, a big-time program. I mean, it, the, the stadium, the, uh, uh, the press box, they're just, in general, just awful. I mean, it's just 
they should be, and you know they're out, you know, trying to, you know, they're out hiring a, a big time coach, and they're doing it with USC's money. I mean, USC's underwriting, essentially, I think, all the new coaches in the league, um, and uh, I think at least they should be aware of that in the Pac-12, and they should say thank you every once in a while. Now, maybe USC needs to ask them, you know, in cases like the NCAA uh, for the Pac-12 support. And that's the difference. If you want to say, is there a difference between the SEC and the Pac-12? Yes. The SEC, they round up, you know, they uh, circle the wagons and they defend their own. You know, Auburn and Alabama may hate one another, but Alabama didn't, you know, didn't say, uh, you know, to the NCAA, let's uh, take Auburn down after last year. And that's not the same situation I don't think that you would find in the Pac-12. It just seemed like they didn't seem to care too much what happened to USC. Uh, and uh, I think USC needs to figure out a way to get the Pac-12 on their side a little bit. I mean, for example, Larry Scott on Friday night basically took a shot at USC like it was USC's fault that he didn't have a better game Friday night. You know, like it was USC, they, you know, they were the rules breakers and they had to serve their time and da da da. You know, what a punk. I mean, really, that was a punky statement for him to make. And obviously he's defending himself because he's got such a horrible game on his hands. But, uh, but I thought that was uncalled for. And I'm hoping somebody from USC called uh, Larry Scott on that because that was, uh, that was out of place. It was making USC, uh, you know, responsible for Larry not looking so good in that first championship game. Yeah, I think he did a good job of his, on his own not looking so good. Um, yeah. Well, we got a couple of quick. Let's do a couple of quick BCS things. Josh's. This is a great question. How does the BCS standings work? Uh, yeah, we don't really have time to get into all that. But he felt that the Pac-12 schools were being showed like there was a disadvantage over the SEC teams. But he was happy to see USC move up to the AP poll. And just so you know, Stanford was four in the AP poll, USC five, and Oregon six. Uh, but Tom Malloy in uh, Orinda, California. I'm not sure where that is. I hope I pronounced that right. He said, "How does the BCS ranked schools when USC is on the schedule. This is a little more interesting. Does it hurt Oregon or Stanford? There seems one more way that the BCS and NCAA have no real interest in creating a fair and effective system of crowning a champion. Couldn't agree with you more, Tom, but maybe, Dan, just let them know how that works. Well, um, Tom and I actually emailed. Uh, Tom you know, has a real interest in this. and I um, uh, Basically, USC is uh, ranked way underranked uh, in the computers and, and the, you know, the Arizona state game kills them. And as somebody noted on the P essentially human voters know that there is nothing to choose between USC and Stanford, for example, in that game, but in the computers, you know, they are not allowed to consider the, you know, where, you know, or they don't all consider very much where the game was played or if it was an overtime game or what it was. They just consider that Stanford won that game. So uh, USC is undervalued, I think, in the computers. But they are in all the computers, the six computers. So uh, uh, the Pac-12 teams that play USC get the same, uh, you know, uh, ranking as Notre Dame would get for playing USC or, or whoever. Uh I think the Pac-12 is hurting itself, as Oklahoma State did. Uh, you know, there was, they played their uh, ninth uh, uh, conference game, and the, and the Big 12 or the SEC doesn't. And so, uh, 
you had, for example, because those teams in the Big 12 were playing one another last weekend, their they their conference took more losses over the weekend. Uh, the SEC didn't. The SEC only had one loss. Uh, so uh, by the SEC, you know, basically playing the eight conference game schedule as opposed to the nine uh, in the Pac-12, you know, I think that hurts the Pac-12 because they're guaranteed six more losses as a league. Uh, whereas if you looked at that, uh, you know, say uh, 12th game uh, played by the SEC, they could be 12-0 and looking at the teams they play. Uh, and that's how they're gaming the system. They've figured out that, and they've limited the computers in ways that they can't count. They really don't take into consideration, I think, enough home or away uh, or margin of victory or essentially how really bad some of those teams are that the SEC plays. Uh, that the SEC has just perfectly figured out a way to game the system. I mean, they start off the year with seven or teams that are ranked, you know, Miss, you know, Mississippi State. I still remember first week of the season, we're watching LSU and Mississippi State, two ranked teams, Mississippi State. Man, this is a year they're really going to be good. They're terrible. And, <laughs> you know, by the end of the year, everybody knows they're terrible. But when LSU beat them, they were a ranked team. I mean, Auburn, they're terrible. They're still ranked. I mean, they're still in the top 25. That's a joke. That's an absolute joke. Uh, so uh, the SEC has, uh, has taken the computers, figured out exactly how to game them, and, uh, you know, and then they tell everybody how great they are. And these, like, for example, they count the Harris Poll. I mean, just, I mean, imagine. You look at the AP, and it took them all year, and those are actually guys working in the media who, who probably, to some extent, pay some attention. If you looked at the Harris Pollsters, those guys, how are they're probably not paying the same level of attention, and you know it's easy for people to be swayed by you know by the SEC telling everybody how great they are. Uh, but you know at least the AP got it right. It's amazing when you think that the S- or the uh, Pac-12 ends up with the numbers four, five, and six teams in the country. That's almost uh, that's truly amazing. Uh, this last week that that happened. It is pretty amazing. It's a testament to what some of the top teams of the Pac-12 are doing. We'll see. And then with some of the bottom teams, Dan, and this is leading to our next question, and I think this can really help the conference overall, but West, West wants to know, what do you think about the coaching changes or perspective changes at Arizona, Arizona State, UCLA, Washington State, as they relate to USC from a competition recruiting and conference strength perspective? You know, Leach and Rodriguez are already there. And then you got a couple other guys that'll be coming in pretty soon. I, I do think it's going to help overall in the conference that you can you get a guy like Mike Leach. Is I don't think you're going to see Washington State losing, you know, early out of conference games. And like you mentioned, that's that's where the SEC kind of takes. You know, they all win their early games, and then when you play each other, you're all ranked. And I think this can help in that kind of situation. And I, as far as the uh, new coaches in the Pac-12, I'm not sure. You know how that. Um, because basically uh, what the SEC understands is you're only trying to produce one or two teams. If, uh, you know, having Mike Leach at Washington State makes that a really hard, you know, place to go play, uh, or if he's taking a, you know, a wide receiver and a, somebody else, you know, away from, you know, from somebody, uh, 
whether that's a net plus or not, you know, for the Pac-12, I don't know. Uh, you know, it could be, it could work the other way around. I mean, uh, uh, in terms of winning a national championship, uh, we'll see. It, it is interesting. I think, you know, Lane does have a, a, a different approach to um, uh, every game a little bit. Uh, I think Pete was so good at on the big games because he let the, the you know, the, everything kind of take care of itself. And the big games just, you know, built, built themselves up, but that left you a little bit vulnerable for an Oregon State after an Ohio State, you know, something like that. Uh, that'll be interesting to see, but, um, you know, uh, I'm not sure having more good coaches in the Pac-12 will um, uh, prepare uh, a team to win the national championship. I think at least one of the things about the Pac-12 is, you do see a diversity of attacks. You see more good quarterbacks. You see more good receivers. Uh, you see a little bit of everything. Uh, you know, you have a, an Oregon that plays one way and a Stanford that plays a completely other way. You don't see that in a lot of conferences uh, where you have that kind of, uh, you know, really a top five programs that are as different as you could possibly have them. So I think the Pac-12 always had an advantage there in a lot of ways. Uh, uh, this will just make it tougher, I think. Uh, is that a good thing or not? I don't know. I mean, uh, the other thing was because you were playing nine opponents as opposed to eight, especially when it was the old Pac-10, you had one more chance at getting upset. And probably that cost USC at least two national championships, you know, of, of you know, that last game, that one other game that you played that, you know, somebody in the SEC didn't have to play or, uh, you know, was the game. So I'm not convinced, you know, be good for the Pac-12, be good for watching. It might not be good for somebody getting through unscathed and getting to the uh, championship game. Okay. Uh, thanks for that one, West. This was an interesting one from Art Martinez. It's kind of more of a statement. Um, he wanted to, to send something. He's uh, stationed overseas, and he wanted to send something to Matt Barkley, so I thought I'd read it on the show for him. Um, he said, Matt, I think you should make the best decision possible. You are an unselfish person and will go down as one of the greatest ever at USC no matter when you leave. When I left the military, I had two options, take a job stateside with good money and never deploy, but travel to nice places, or spend nine months out of the year in Afghanistan doing missions with Conventional and special forces. I'm 26, about to be 27 and single. For me, it wasn't about the money. I took this job in Afghanistan because I wanted to do something special and never wanted to regret my decision. I never wanted to feel what could have been. For me, I needed this experience for the rest of my life. To be honest, my best mission was finding two IEDs before the convoy ran over them. Not, uh, not how many insurgents we've taken out. That's irrelevant. To me, it doesn't matter how many people we kill. What matters is how many fathers, brothers, and sons I can help bring home. That's special to me. You have to find what's special for you and don't ever regret it. This is not a guilt trip. Our lives are totally different, and I wish no one uh, no one lived this life of mine. This is special to me. What's special to you? Good luck. Best wishes. I'm 100% behind any decision you make. Fight on from Art Martinez. Kind of a nice uh, letter there from Art there. Yeah, and I think that's exactly the right way to approach it. You know, Matt doesn't owe it to... USC, he doesn't owe it to us as media or the fans. I mean, yeah, sure. We look at it and say, yeah, USC becomes a bigger story and a hotter story if Matt's coming back. We know that. And USC 
you know, would they be number one? I don't know. LSU, you know, they're going to tell us a thousand times how good LSU is coming back. But uh, uh, it sets up, you know, a wonderful storyline. And, you know, it it makes it easier nationally for people to understand it. I mean, I was telling people last week, I think Mac Barkley got more coverage last week than Oregon, UCLA, the Pac-12 championship game, and Larry Scott all together. Uh, you know, just the potential of what's Matt Barkley going to do. Uh, so I think it, it, you under, it underscores what, how that might work for next year and the storyline and how that, would work, how, how that would play out. And I think it would set up such a natural Pac-12 USC versus the SEC uh, matchup that uh, that we all like, you know, think about. Wow, that would be great if that happened. But you, I think the only way you can look at it is just the way. Uh, 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 that was Art. Art. Art Martinez. Uh, the way he set it up, he set it up exactly correctly. Uh, that you, all you can hope for is for Matt to make the exact right choice for himself, and and I think he will. Uh, okay. Well, thanks for that one, Art. And let's see, we've got Jerry. What happened to Victor Blackwell? Being such a highly touted recruit, he seemed to have dropped off the radar. Well, he, he redshirted, and, and I thought he looked really good uh, you know, on the service team. Uh, I think he just uh, he had a good day almost every day. He, could, he, could, he actually, I thought, uh, played better than I expected. I, I thought he had a really, really good uh, uh, redshirt freshman year. He... Uh, he showed a lot, uh, a lot of days in practice. But you know, what what happens is you don't really report what the uh, uh, you know other than a, an occasional here or there. Uh, what happens with the service team? Much you know, if they move some uh, Vanuku to you know middle linebacker a couple of different weeks or whatever, people might you know we might talk about that or uh, you know a couple of the defensive linemen. Uh, make a big play here or there. And, you know, you mentioned, and Victor has had some, you know, really good catches and things like that. But I thought he ran well, thought he caught the ball well, thought he played with a lot of a lot of heart and, and real enthusiasm. And uh, uh, But uh, but he redshirted. So uh, you'll hear about him in the spring. But, uh, but you know, there is only room for one Marquise Lee on, on that. You know, when, <laughs> when you look at all the, you know, all the receivers, uh, there just weren't enough uh, throws uh, to to use up his redshirt year, uh, you know, uh, and and there just you know there weren't enough spots. I mean, when you had uh, and you know they for a while they were trying to work in you know Marquise Ambles, and um, uh, you know with the upperclassmen that you know the Brandon Carswells and uh, you know Kyle Prater trying to uh, you know get get time in there. There just really wasn't time for another. Uh, uh, freshman uh, wide receiver. Okay. Uh, thanks for that one, Jerry. Let's see. Mark has a question. Um, in your story, Dan, when you quoted Matt Barkley after the UCLA game, it says, we have to take care of business with some players, unfortunately. But now that they're gone, this team is closer together. Was Matt referring to Dylan Baxter? I understand if you don't want to respond, um, but just kind of maybe get your comments on what, what Matt was trying to say there. Well, I ran that by... Uh, uh, Christian Tupo and uh, and Ross Cumming and and their take on it was that uh, everything that happened with this team, the team had input. 
that, uh, that that there was really a lot of communication, uh, basically, uh, you know, every day between the team and the coaches, and that the team would have had input on, uh, you know, situations like Marquise and Dylan. But uh, uh, Ross felt that, uh, he said, you know, it clearly the decision was Coach Kiffin's. Uh, but we, we had... You know, we were definitely uh, involved in in how we felt about it. Uh, that they were they were involved in. He said basically everything that that happened this year, uh, the players had a take on it. You know, from how they were practicing to uh, you know how they were uh, you know if they were competing. Uh, that they, for example, with Pete, you know, the competition was much more out in the open. Uh, they kind of kept it in house more. Uh, in terms of who would get the ice cream at the, you know, Friday night uh, at the hotel, that kind of thing, between the offense and defense and all that. They kept more things, I think, in-house, but they were very much involved in all those things. I think clearly that's what Matt, Matt was talking about, but uh, that they were they were involved in that decision, uh, but that the decision was, uh, was Coach Kiffin's uh, at the end. Okay. Uh, let's see. Let's move on. Thanks for that one, Mark. We have a couple questions from Jack in San Francisco. It's kind of this is about scholarship stuff. Um, he went first one. What can USC convert athletic scholarships into non-athletic scholarships, similar to Frankie Telfert and Matt Meyer situation? Yes. Yes, they can. They can, you know they have a legitimate health reason, or they have to stop playing uh, football. I mean, uh, you know, one or both. But they couldn't. They could not keep playing football and uh, and convert to scholarship. If they stay on scholarship and stay on the football team, it always remains as a countable football scholarship. So no, you can't you can't convert them uh, once they're started. Once they started out to receive uh, uh, financial aid as a football player, you can't convert them to anything else and still have them play football without being counted. Okay, and then I think it probably answers that question, the second one. Does the 75-man roster only apply to players who appear in actual games? Uh, the NCAA made us forfeit games due to the appearance of an ineligible player. Could we have practice players who are on scholarship with zero chance of appearing in an actual game? Thanks, love the show, and that's Jack in San Francisco. I don't know. No, if they're getting, if they're getting aid... They count against uh, the uh, 75 scholarships. Yeah, yeah, we get a lot of questions about, well, what if it's like, no, right. basically if you play football, <laughs> you're on scholarship. Um, there's not really much you can do. Yeah, I mean, I know somebody was creative and said, well, what if you take the four you know, juniors who are going to the NFL uh, either this year or next year and ask them to just you know, uh, pay their uh, next year scholarship uh, out of their NFL bonus or whatever, uh, not that those kids wouldn't do it even. Uh, and then that frees up four scholarships. Uh, no, 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 no. The NCAA's figured that out. I mean, they understood what would happen at some schools. If you were allowed to do that, uh, you know, they'd have 200 guys on scholarship uh, one, one way or another. Uh, so there would be uh, too many ways to get around that. So, uh, no, they, they, they decided if you have ever had any football scholarship aid, uh, you uh, you remain as a football scholarship, count, you know, uh, that counts forever as long as you're on the football team. Yeah, you can't like go. Oh, I'm going to walk up. 
Now, I think it's a little different when you have a someone that was a walk-on given a scholarship. They can take that away, right? Is that? Do you understand it that way? I don't think so. I, I I'm not sure. That's a good question. Uh, that is a good question. Uh, it's I think you didn't. On and I, then you get a scholarship. I think once you've gotten scholarship, then I don't think you can take that scholarship away. Um, and have them still play football. You can take the scholarship away, but they can't play football anymore. That'll now, be that interesting will be the to same see. Thing, I think if they if they're forced, you know, they come down and now you got seventy seven. You know, are you going to have to tell a couple of kids? Uh, not only uh, you know that maybe you can stay on scholarship, but you can't stay on the team. I mean, I think they're going to definitely make it available so kids have. Uh, are not going to be left without scholarship aid, but they may only be able to keep their scholarships, uh, and it might be a different. It'll be a different kind of scholarship, because obviously, if USC has to go from 85 this year to 75 next year, they've got 10 scholarships already budgeted. You know that they've got money for. What the NCAA is going to say is, yeah, you can keep them on some sort of scholarship. You just can't let them play football anymore. Now, these are kids, you know, that have busted their tail and wanted to be part of the football program and are out there practicing every day, and they may not be the, you know, the guys that are going to, you know, uh, you know win, the, win you the national championship uh, on the field, uh, but in practice, they might. And uh, those kids might have to be told that, you know, you can't uh, be on the football team anymore, and that's, that's kind of a shame. And that, that, that's why the NCAA should never be allowed to penalize in terms of taking scholarships away from kids. That's why what the NCAA did, what Paul D. did to USC, is, is, is essentially evil uh, and, and uh, essentially against their stated mission of uh, enhancing the student-athlete's uh, uh, college experience. Uh, it's far from that, and it's, it's an embarrassment for the NCAA, and that they don't even see that, that they don't understand how, that, how, how wrong that is tells you all you need to know about those people that they're so insulated in their you know bureaucracy and taking care of themselves that they you know don't pay any attention to the kids at all and what it does uh, you know to them uh, you know is is kids that have, most of them you know devo- you know devoted their whole life to playing football and uh, for no reason of their own uh, no fault of their own uh, may get separated from the team and and that's wrong We'll get some clarification on that. It might be a rule where, because like a, a guy like Will Andrew, who got a scholarship this year, started off as a walk-on and then was given one. I think if you start off as a scholarship player, you could never come off of it. But I'm not sure. So we'll find out about yeah. that. Because- My sense is once you've been given a scholarship to play football, you count as a scholarship player forever as long as you play football. Now, if they would take – if they would – say we can't count you as a scholarship player because you throw us over 75 uh usc could keep him on scholarship but they couldn't keep him on the team that's from what i understand and once they start as a scholarship player uh they can never become anything else other than a scholarship player if they're still on the team i mean that's the, the sense is you might have to separate a kid from the team uh for only the only reason is He's going to throw you over the seventy-five limit, and that that would be that would be kind of a shame. 
It certainly would. Uh, well, Jack has an interesting question on that, too. When does that 75-man roster have to be set? Fall? It's important for spring practice. And I, I believe it would be for, you know, after signing day. But where, when do you think it has to be set? I think for fall. I think, I think this year's numbers go all the way through this year. So, so I think it would be um, uh, for next fall. Okay, yeah, that would make uh, that would make sense. Uh, let's see, we'll, we're almost out of time. We'll get it, we'll try to get through these quick. There's a couple left. Uh, Joe wants to know: Is Andre Walker being groomed to take over for Khalil, or is there someone else the coaches are looking um, to uh, to play left tackle? And uh, with two seniors leaving, what do you think the rotation is going to look like for next year? Well, I personally don't see Andre as that guy who's out there blocking in space. Um, uh, I, you know, I like what I see. I, I mean, he's aggressive, he's tough, he's physical. Um, uh, I think that's more of a footwork position. And I was lucky enough to actually even worked a little bit for the Cincinnati Bengals when Anthony Munoz played there. And I actually got to do, uh, uh, some high school games with, with Anthony, uh, back in the Cincinnati area on radio. And he's always been my, you know, like the, the dream version of the, you know, left tackle with his footwork, you know, the, uh, bringing in the, all the footwork that, you know, a baseball, uh, having been a you know pitcher and first baseman, Anthony had this, you know, six, seven, 300 pound guy who had, you know, was so light on his feet and could move in space and, and maintain contact with those, um, you know, edge rushers and things like that. And I don't see that as Andre Walker's uh, role. He's just he's so big and strong and, and, and such a force. You, you see him more as a right tackle or, or for me, even more so as a guard. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, one of the thoughts, and we were just kicking this around, is uh, uh, one of the guys who does really block well on the second level and maybe, you know, on the first level and the guy right on him, he's not the, you know, absolute greatest, but he really does have the ability to stay with people and take them out uh, in, in the open field is, is Colin Holmes. Would he be a potential left tackle if you're going to get uh, um, uh, Markowitz back, Abe Markowitz, you've got uh, John Martinez who are both interchangeable with center, center guard, would uh, would Khalid Holmes, who again, the thing he does so well is is cutting linebackers and getting you know maintaining uh, you know taking down people you know down downfield a little bit. Uh, would he be the most natural guy to move to that spot and uh, and make the changes in, internally? I don't know, uh, but I think you know they're going to have to take a lot of different looks at. at, at at that spot if uh if matt goes out of there but uh but i think that's one of the one of the things i might look at and uh, uh and, but i i don't know that i'd look at andre as uh, as the first guy out there i i think that would be asking an awful lot to because uh, you really often get isolated out there in that that left tackle spot and uh you really really better be able to maintain your quick feet and uh and maintain contact with those guys and and that doesn't seem to be the the number one strength of Andre. He's got a lot of them, and I think he's going to be a really good player. But I, I don't see him necessarily going there. Okay, and then one last one, Dan. JJB wants to know what your gut feeling is. Well, the future of Armand Armstead. I don't know. 
know. That's a good question. Uh, Lane, you know, is I think he's kind of given us some clues. I almost did interpret what Lane told us, and I guess I was the one that asked him the question uh, two weeks ago, that Armand, you almost got the sense that Armand could come back and play at USC. Now, Lane says he can't specifically go into medical details, uh, and he can't, and USC doctors can't. I've always assumed that maybe there was a time frame that more than anything else governed his medical clearance. Uh, again, we've heard other things. I've, you know, the way I've looked at it is there is a time frame, and the time frame will allow Armand to either, at that point, decide. I want to go, and this is what Lane tells you. So, I mean, either I can, at this point, I can go to the NFL, I can go to the Combine, I can work out, and by the time uh, the draft would be here, I'd be cleared. Or uh, possibly, if that t- same time frame exists for the NFL, one would have to assume it might exist for USC as well. Could he come back? Uh, I mean, Lane said he could, but then he didn't say he could, he would be cleared. Uh, he, you know, it's kind of a, uh, a conundrum, you know, it's just it's so hard to know without knowing the absolute specifics of the case. You know, my hunch is if he wanted to play at USC next year, I get the sense that he might be able to, uh, but you know, does he want to play in the NFL next year? Uh, I think he'd also be able to do that. Uh, he wasn't able to play this fall. That seems to tell me that the decision is, is time-related, time-sensitive, uh, not so much uh, uh, related to the condition because you know they certainly allowed him to go out and work very hard uh, in terms of his conditioning and his weightlifting and all of other, uh, the other things, which would tell me it's not a heart issue. He told me, Armand told me, you know, that he, his primary care physician was, the car, was not a cardiologist, that they had handed him off to the blood specialist. So, again, that tells me not a heart issue. My guess is a time frame issue. And if it's a time frame issue, the only thing that I could come up with that for an athlete with a time frame issue, and, and I, I told this to Armand, I didn't get an answer back was that it sounds like a blood clot, and he listened. He didn't indicate it. And the problem with the blood clot is uh, if they treat you with blood thinners, there, is, there are so few of those cases with someone who's playing football, a contact collision sport, which will cause you to uh, get bruises, deep bruises, uh, bruises that could bleed. And if you've been treated with blood thinner, then the question is, how long do you go uh, before you're basically your system is safe enough that you can, you know, start taking the bruising and the contact and the collisions that you take in football? Uh, you know, that's kind of the thing that I've always thought it was. Again, we certainly don't know that that's the case, and we're probably never going to know for sure that that's the case. But uh, 
in that case, it's a time as a time frame issue, and uh, maybe, you know, I'll give you a really you know clear <laughs> maybe for Armand, and uh, that may be as good as we can we can come up with. It does look like there have been some communication issues between uh, what Armand and his parents have been hearing, and what the USC medical people have been saying. Again, I'm only guessing at that. Uh, you know, Gus has talked to us a little bit about it, uh, and it's just kind of, it doesn't seem like they're talking always, or from what we can hear from what we, we know is happening, that they're on exactly the same page in terms of what they're, uh, what they're talking about, uh, in terms of uh, whether he could be cleared or not, or how he could be cleared. But, uh, but I, I wouldn't completely write it off. All right. Well, Dan, thanks very much for all your insights there and stepping in, batting lead off. Uh, we'll have Harvey Hyde on again next week, and uh, it's been fun. We'll we'll talk to you again next week, and I know you're going to the awards dinner tonight for USC football players, so we can get an update on that next week. Thanks very much. Looking forward to it. See all right. On. Everyone else, back in 30 seconds, talking with Chris Houston, the Heisman Pundit, about Matt Barkley's chances to win and go to New York for the Heisman ceremony. Meet us on the other side of the break for more of the Peristyle Podcast. Tickets, tickets, tickets. SC Tickets is your concert, sports, and theater ticket source. We have the tickets you need to any event worldwide. Football tickets are now available. Call SC Tickets now at 1-800-888-7287. 1-800-888-7287. That's 1-800-888-7287. Or visit us on the web at sctickets.com. SC Tickets, concert, sports, and theater. We now return to the Peristyle Podcast and your host, Ryan Abraham. Welcome back to the Peristyle Podcast. We have a very special guest. We have Chris Houston, otherwise known as the Heisman Pundit. You can check him out on heismanpundit.com. He is in New York, just landed in New York, actually, for the Heisman Ceremony, which will be this Saturday, but coming up in a couple of hours at 3 o'clock Pacific time, 6 o'clock Eastern time, there should be an announcement of who the Heisman finalists will be. Chris is over there in New York. We're going to talk to him about all that. Chris, thanks for coming on. What's up? Hey, Ryan. How's it going? Good to talk to a fellow Heisman Trophy voter. I, I am. This is my first year, and I sent in my Heisman ballot over the Internet uh, yesterday. When did you send yours in? I sent mine in yesterday as well, so I think uh, it was a little late in the afternoon. I was kind of struggling back and forth between one and two, and then I struggled back and forth between the third spot as well, but I finally got it done. I did as well, and uh, I mean, they're so, they do it by regions, and I think some of the West Coast people might vote a little differently than the South people and the Eastern people and all that kind of stuff. Um, it was my first year doing it, and maybe I'll, I'll reveal, I, re- I will reveal my Heisman ballot, maybe get your thoughts on that. Um, I actually went for third place. I did uh, RG3, Robert Griffin. Uh, he just really impressed me, uh, and I thought he needed to, to deserve to be in New York, and he'd be up in the ballot. He could even win. I did Andrew Luck, number two, and I did uh, a little homerism there. I guess you could say Matt Barkley, number one. And <laughs> My reason just behind that was, I mean, he had better numbers than, than Matt Liner did and Carson Palmer did, um, and I think the way he had to do it this year not being able to go to a bowl and just having so many things against him as far as the sanctions and all the NCAA stuff that we've talked about like a million times. 
I just felt that he was able to kind of step above all of that, and that's kind of why I put him in there. But maybe get your thoughts on on how I voted for the Heisman. Well, you know, it, it's definitely a valid vote. Uh, Matt's definitely a deserving guy. Uh, I think how you voted is kind of a reflection of of what happens uh, in the Heisman vote, uh, and people always wonder, you know, how can you vote for this guy? How can you vote for that guy? But uh, Matt Barkley's a guy you've been covering for four years now. You know him very well. Um, and uh, if you look at who you voted for, Matt Barkley, you know very well. And Andrew Luck, you probably know second most well among the candidates because you've seen him play three times. You've been pretty close to him. You've been at Pac-12 media day and all that stuff. And it's just kind of human nature to, to vote for something or to choose something or to adhere yourself to something that you know very uh, closely. So it, it's... Um, it makes sense. You know, Matt Barkley's numbers were wonderful. Uh, you've been around him. Uh, you know he's a great guy. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very natural uh, uh, thing to vote for, that which is familiar. So I think we'll see that all around the country where there's uh, people who cover Alabama are voting for Trent Richardson and people who cover Wisconsin are voting for, for Monty Ball and so on and so forth. So I think it's a very good effort on your first try uh, uh, as a Heisman voter, and you can certainly do a lot worse. All right. Well, thanks for that. Uh, now, do you want to talk about who you voted for, or do you wait till after, or how does that work? Uh, I'll, I'll tell you who I voted for. Uh, I actually voted for uh, Andrew Luck first, and then I voted for Robert Griffin the third, second, and I voted for Monty Ball third. And my reasoning was, uh, I struggled a lot between uh, Griffin and Luck, and um, I actually think Griffin's going to win the race. And I figured that uh, if, if Griffin wins. I can say I voted for Luck, uh, whereas if I had voted for Griffin and he had won, I, I might have regretted not voting for Luck. So I kind of have it both ways in that regard. Uh, kind of some convoluted thinking, I guess. But uh, <laughs> And then as for the third spot, uh, Monty Ball, uh, he uh, he had 38 touchdowns. And in the end, I just couldn't I couldn't let a guy who had scored 38 touchdowns uh, not appear on a ballot. It just didn't seem right to me. And I struggled a lot with that third spot. I thought about... Uh, Tyron Matthew of LSU. I thought about Colin Klein of Kansas State because I really uh, was impressed by him and what he did with the, the Wildcats over there uh, coming back uh, into the top ten. So I ended up going with Money Ball because of those 38 touchdowns. I don't think I could have gone wrong with uh, either Andrew Luck or Robert Griffin III. But I chose Luck because, again, he's a guy I, I've talked to. I've met him, and uh, he seemed like a really humble guy. And There's that personal connection that's hard to overcome. I agree. And uh, for Trent Richardson, I think that people are, it, it seemed to me there was some kind of agenda pushing him. I mean, most of his yards came against the really crappy defenses. Like half his yards came in like four games. And with Matthew, I mean, he was suspended for a little while. I mean, it, I, I'm just not, it wasn't like a Charles Woodson kind of season for him, for me at least. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You know, that was in the end, I wasn't going to vote for a guy who'd been, who'd been suspended uh, during the year. That was a decider for Matthew, especially. Richardson, I think he's a great back. Uh, I think he didn't have a great year. He, he had under 1,600 yards. And, you know, there's only been one other running back since 1975 who gained under 1,600 yards and won the Heisman, and that was his former teammate, Mark Ingram. So I wasn't about to uh, to give Richardson another, uh, you know, crack at that. And uh, plus they got the BCS title game, both teams in there. I think they don't need a Heisman. So that was my rationale behind not picking uh, Trent Richardson. Um, so it's just um, – yeah, I'm happy with my vote, and uh, I think in the end it's going to be Robert Griffin III. I think he's going to win, uh, not not by a landslide, not by a huge amount, but somewhat comfortably. Uh, I don't think that would be a bad thing for him, and, and you know we'll see. I mean, I, I think he's he'd be a great candidate. I mean, he was awesome 
this year. So, yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. there's a lot of deserving guys this year. I don't think it should be any kind of runaway winner. Uh, but I'll be curious to see what happens. But I guess the first thing is, who's going to be up there in New York? Did uh, did Matthew do enough to, to bump Barkley, I guess, as one of the top five guys? Is Barkley going to be there? What do you think? Well, that's what a lot of SC people have asked me over the last few days, is, is Matt going to go? And unfortunately, I think, um, you know, there's a difference between saying someone should go and whether someone will go. And it's, it's probably true of about eight or nine people that they should go to New York. I mean, you, you look at uh, the list, Kellen Moore had, had probably his best season of four remarkable seasons, and he's not getting anywhere near New York, and he went last year. Um, so uh, Russell Wilson of Wisconsin had another fantastic year. won't be anywhere near New York. It was a really strong field this year, and how they work it is, uh, I often hear this other thing that people say, who are the five finalists going to be? Well, it's not five finalists. In the last 20 years, there's only been twice as there have been five finalists in New York. Most of the time, it's three or four. And how they work it is they look at the uh, at your support level. And if there's a big drop-off between three and four or a big drop-off between four and five, that person on the outer, the outer part of that tally uh, doesn't go. That's where the cutoff is. And I think it's going to be four guys. I think it's going to be Robert Griffin. I think it's going to be Andrew Luck. I think it's going to be Trent Richardson. And I think it's going to be Monty Ball. Although, if anyone will be left off that, it will be Monty Ball. So, I don't think Matt's going to make it this year. If he comes back, I think he's a lock uh, to make it next year. And I would call him uh, the Heisman frontrunner, especially given what I consider to be the greatest receiving core in the history of college football coming back to throw to. Wow. So, I mean, well, I guess those touchdowns kind of impress you, I guess. <laughs> What's that? All the touchdowns impress you, huh? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, uh <laughs> I think I think that uh, part of uh, I mean, the huge reason for Matt's success was having the best receiving core in the country to throw to, without a doubt. Yeah, I mean, having his numbers be better than Palmer's, better than Leinert's. I, I, yeah, we'll we'll talk about if Barkley comes back and all that stuff another day. But uh, I know Lane. Well, you Kippen... know, those, the, the comparison with the numbers. You know, the thing is, is it's kind of a different era now. And and you know, back when Carson Palmer had those numbers and Matt Leinert had those numbers. Uh, the spread era hadn't really, uh, you know, come upon us, and those kind of numbers now are part of the course. So to say they were better, I think you know maybe that's not the quite the angle I would have taken uh, to convince people about uh, about uh, Matt Barkley's you know worthiness. Um, the problem with, with with basing your campaign almost entirely upon statistics is that most statistics can be can be uh, shot full of holes. Uh, so you can you can talk about Matt Barkley having more touchdown passes than Andrew Luck, but but then you can also turn around and say, well, he also threw the ball 70, 77 more times. Uh, so and he had four more touchdown passes. So there's there's all kinds of uh, ways to look at it, and I think uh, you know there's a lot more reasons why Matt Barkley deserved to go to New York rather than just his stats alone. Do you think David Shaw kind of uh, screwed over Andrew Luck a little bit by not? Let it, opening up more and letting him throw the ball more? Well, I don't know who he was, was going to throw to. Uh, they had a former walk-on, Griff Whalen, uh, as their primary receiver for much of the last half of the year. And I think if, if you look at the history of football and you're looking at an offense that's based primarily on uh, uh, tight ends uh, and just throwing to tight ends and maybe just some running backs out of the backfield, uh, you don't see many guys throwing 35 touchdown passes and having that efficiency rating. 
um, uh, with uh, with those kind of targets to throw to. I certainly think that if you know, I think Shaw was correct. He did not have two first round picks to throw to, and so I think that kind of puts in context, uh, you know, what Luck did this year. And I think the most impressive thing that I think the thing that impressed me the most, I was going to go vote for Robert Griffin the third, and what impressed me the most at the end was the presentation that Shaw made, explaining how Luck uh, calls ninety percent of the plays, basically serves as an offensive coordinator on the field. Uh, makes you wonder, you know, what they're paying the other offensive coordinator for. But, uh, but you know, I thought that was very impressive. Um, all right. So we're going to f- see. You think Robert Griffin is going to finish first. How do you how do you have the order coming in your mind? How do you think it's going to come down? Uh, I've got it nailed. I think it's going to be Robert Griffin, the third. Then it's going to be Andrew Luck. Then it's going to be Trent Richardson. Then it'll be Monty Ball. And then it'll be Tyron Matthews. And then it'll be Matt Barkley. I think that'll be the top six, and then seventh will be Case Keenum. There's a chance that five, six, and seven could be slightly different, but I'm pretty solid on the top four uh, based on my uh, understanding of how the vote's going and, and my gauging of the various voters that I've talked to. Uh, that appears to be uh, the way it's going right now. I was uh, I tried to do my best to watch as much football as I could this weekend because there was Heisman candidates all over the place, and uh Got to see Keenum, man. I, I was thinking about him for a little while, and then he just – really the only time I got to see him extensively, he didn't play all that well. Uh, which guy? Case Keenum. Oh, Case Keenum, yeah. Uh, you know, that's another uh, example of uh, of a guy that was in his position as a Heisman uh, contender because of uh, he was on an undefeated team and he had incredible stats. But not many people had actually seen him play, or not enough people had seen him play, and what amounted to a big game. So – in the biggest game of their season, their conference title game, uh, 9 o'clock start out west, uh, national television, that was the first chance a lot of people got to really see him. And so they wanted to put kind of uh, some actions to those stats, and actions and a face and a name to those stats they knew about and to those wins they had seen. And it turned out that uh, he didn't have a great game, and, and that pretty much shot his uh, candidacy uh, full of holes. So I think it's uh, you know that shows you the danger of, of uh, the Heisman race and what can happen in just one game. All right. Well, you're out there in New York now. What, uh, what, do you, what are you looking forward to doing? You're going to be there for a while. Yeah, I decided to take a few more days uh, this, this this year. I'm here with uh, uh, one of the friends of the website, Lady Julius, who I think will be on your podcast next week. Uh, we do this every year. We go out here. We cover the Heisman ceremony. We're going to be here when the players arrive. We'll get interviews. We'll have streaming video uh, with some Heisman voters like uh, – Stu Mandel of Sports Illustrated. Uh, we will be having uh, covering the press conference at the Heisman uh, when the, the winner comes afterwards and has his press conference. We'll have exclusive coverage of that streaming live. We'll have quotes, pictures, all the kinds of uh, things you'd expect covering a, an event like this. Uh, and on my website, there's sort of a Heisman Central uh, page, just kind of like how you have your spring football central or fall camp central page for uscfootball.com. I've done the same thing. So uh, we're going to be here and cover as much of the Heisman as we can and, uh, you know, try to get as much information out to as many people as possible. All right. Well, Chris, we look forward to uh, the Heisman ceremony and checking out what you got going on the site. Again, it's HeismanPundit.com. Thanks for uh, joining us uh, at the New York. <laughs> Which airport are you at? Well, we just left JFK. We're, we're going through, uh, through some, uh, some fog that's as thick as pea soup. <laughs> I think that's the the soup that you always have to it always has to be when it's thick. It's never yes. any other kind of soup. It's always pea soup. I don't know why that is, but 
Yeah. Pea soup. Well, enjoy uh, yeah. enjoy your time in New York. Tell Lanny I said hello, and we'll uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds great, Ryan. I'll talk to you later. All right, everyone, that's uh, Chris Houston, HeismanPundit.com. Check it out. At leading up to the Heisman Ceremony this Saturday, we'll find out who wins the award. He's saying Robert Griffin III from Baylor. Thank you very much for tuning into the podcast this week. Thanks to Dan Weber for answering all the questions. And don't forget, we'll have a recruiting podcast tomorrow. And as Chris mentioned, we want to have Lanny Julius on, the Super Scout, next week, who always likes to break down USC's recruiting classes. We'll see what he had to say about the 2011 class. Did he think Marquise Lee was going to have a breakout year? We'll find all that stuff out next week when we talk to Lanny. Thanks again for tuning in the podcast, and we'll talk to you all then. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.